If your Bible, you could turn it on and uh, turn it on or turn the page <laughs> to uh, to Mark uh, Mark eight. Uh, I'll be preaching through uh, from verse twenty two to thirty eight. Mark chapter eight, verse twenty two to to the end of the chapter. Really, let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, your people come before you. And uh, you give us a great promise that uh, whenever we are gathered together in your name, you're there. Uh, what, a, what an amazing promise and uh, amazing truth to know that you are here with us. You are communing with your people. Uh, it's amazing. Lord, uh, we ask that you would uh, open our eyes to see you. Touch our minds to understand your word. Touch our hearts. So we could apply your word in our lives. May our lives reflect your lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. So others may see you through us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark 8, verse 22. Let me read. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. Amen. Well, the passage we just read is uh, the turning point of Mark's gospel. It is where Mark turns the attention from the person of Jesus Christ to his work on the cross. So as I 
read and go through this passage together, there are three things I want to highlight. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he calls us to do. And Mark's aim in this passage, I believe, is to show the magnitude of the authority of Jesus and the purpose of his work. Mark is telling us who really is Jesus, his full authority, and what he came to do. So who is Jesus? I remember growing up in the church in Haiti, I had a very clear vision, understanding of Jesus as a protector and a provider. He protects from evil spirits, and he provides for my needs, even my most basic needs. Now, in a church, in a context like Haiti, it makes a lot of sense because the spiritual warfare is so intense that you need a protector that's much greater than yourself. So Jesus was my protector. I was raised in a family that was so poor, in fact, raised by a single mother who was a high school dropout, abandoned by her husband. I needed a provider. So Jesus was my protector. Jesus was my provider. But the problem was, based on the teaching I was receiving, I had to live a very tight life in order for me not to sin. Because the moment that I sin, then I'm exposed. Jesus would no longer protect me, and he would no longer provide for my needs. So I had to quickly repent so I can be protected and provided. So, you see, in my vision of Jesus as a protector and a provider, though it's true Jesus is a protector, it is true he is a provider, but I could not see that he is my redeemer. Let me give you an example. A neighbor of mine, raised in a Christian uh, home, she, but now she doesn't really attend church much. Occasionally she would go. And we were having a conversation. She said, you know, John, I, I really believe in Jesus. I said, yes, tell me more. Yeah, I believe he's a teacher. He's a prophet. Is that it? Yes. You see, it's true. Jesus is a teacher. True, he is a prophet. But if that's it, that view is not at all or is not fully Christian. The Bible doesn't leave it up to us. To define who Jesus is. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John makes it very clear who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has complete authority over everything when he was working on earth. Just as he is Lord over nature, he is Lord over evil spirits, he is Lord over sickness and diseases, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over death. In fact, Mark, in writing his gospel, in the very beginning, he states the highlight of his book. It is in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, he says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord. Now, Jesus did many miracles to show his unique authority. And despite those miracles, the crowd, the people, they didn't really see him as the Son of God. Even his disciples actually didn't get it. 
If you read in Mark, in the earlier part of the, of the chapter, in, in Mark chapter uh, in 8, verse 17, by, for example, you see that the disciples really didn't get it. The religious leaders were probably even worse. Those guys claim to know God, but their God is talking to them, walking with them, and they could not even see him. They were blind. Their religious and political agenda blinded them. And you know, a blind person cannot heal himself. You know, and, 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 and I think that's why Mark, in uh, verse 22 to 26, he reports this miracle of Jesus healing a blind man. And Mark places this miracle between the report of the blindness of the disciples, the blindness of the uh, religious leaders, and the powerful declaration of Peter. He put it as a bridge. I think Mark's point here is that all human beings are blind to the full identity, to the true identity of Jesus Christ. And that it takes a divine intervention for people to really see who Jesus is. Let's take a few, uh, make a few observations in this uh, miracle because this miracle is a bit strange, I have to admit, a bit strange. So let's, I'm going to make two observations. The first one is on the method and then on the process. The method. Jesus spits on the eyes of the blind man. What's the point of this? You know, I, 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 I think, I think Jesus, the point here is that Jesus is a sovereign healer. He uses whatever means he, dis, he in his good wisdom, finds good to bring about healing. Even methods that we would not use. Even methods that we'll find disgusting. He is sovereign. He is king. He is the creator. He uses whatever means possible to bring about healing. And in this case, his saliva, his spit is a healing ointment. Just powerful stuff. You know, so, sometimes we do put God in a box, you know. Uh, we, we can very, very often find ourselves in situations in that we in dire need of help. But somehow in praying, we also have in our minds how God should answer that prayer. We're probably not going to say it out loud. But in our minds, we expect, okay, this is exactly how it's going to come about. But God is not limited to that method to bring about the solution to a situation. He is God. The process. It's a gradual two-step process. The point here is that the Lord is the God is Lord over the process that brings about healing. God does not cave in to our desire for expediency. God doesn't just hand out healing at a drive-through window. The process is important. The process brings about maturity. The process brings about intimacy with God. Notice in this miracle that Jesus did not heal the man in the village. The Bible says he grabbed him by the hand and took him out of the village. Think about that for a moment. This man was blind. He probably was not the most popular guy in town. He probably was really rejected by the community. He's blind. He could not provide for his own, for his own means of survival. 
people had to carry him where he had to go. The mere fact that God, that Jesus grabbed him by the hand, touched him, showed compassion. Now, he is walking with Jesus. He was in the village. There was a crowd with him. So that took some time for them to clear the village and get outside of the city limits. He is walking with God. He is walking with Jesus. Jesus grabbed him by the hand. Now, he is still blind, but he's walking with the man who will bring about healing. At this point, he feels safe. At this point, he feels secure because his hand is in the hand of Jesus. If he trips, about to fall, he was grip, his grip would weaken, but Jesus' grip would be stronger. He is in good hands. He is walking with Jesus. He's still blind. He's still blind. So the process is important. If you're going through some difficulty and you really would like God to just get you out of it as quickly as possible, we all want that. But there's a process. I remember I was going through a tough time one day and I'm driving and I'm praying, Lord, please get me out of this. I'm, 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 I'm tired. And, and, and I had this picture in my head. It's kind of silly, but it, that's what came to my head. I, I, I figure I'm, I'm, I'm driving and Jesus is on the passenger seat and then I went out of gas. Okay? Ran out of gas and I'm out. I get out and pushing the car to the next gas station and was pushing with me, Jesus. Pushing, pushing, pushing. And, I, and it occurred to me, what, what, what are you doing? You're Jesus. Why are you pushing the car with me? You, you, you're the one who turned water into wine. You could just speak to the gas tank. Boom. But no, he is pushing with me. God Almighty with me. God Almighty in the trial with me. God is walking with the man who is blind. He is still blind. But he knows healing is coming. Healing is coming. So, the process. You see, this miracle, I think, shows that Jesus has the authority to heal blindness. Not just physical blindness, but also spiritual blindness. The method may be unusual. The process may be long. But the result is certain. The blind sees. Even for those of us now, people that you know, who cannot see Jesus as the Son of God today, one day they will see. Either before Christ return or when Christ return in the glory of his Father. The point is, people will all know that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God. So if you have friends and families who are really still struggling to see who Jesus is, we need to pray. Pray. Bring him to the Lord. Pray that God would open their eyes to see like God opened your eyes to see. Because at one point, you too, you were blind. It took a divine intervention for you to see really who Jesus is. Now, Jesus public did a lot of, I mean, he did a lot of miracles. And his miracles went viral. 
There was a buzz on the streets about him. At every social platform, there was discussion about Jesus. Everybody had an opinion about Jesus. You know, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the means was at the time. People had a thought about who Jesus was. So Jesus is working with his disciples. Now in, in verse 27. And, uh, uh, and he asked them a question. Who do people say that I am? What's the buzz in the streets about me? What, what's the word on the streets about me? And Jesus already. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The disciples say, yeah. They, they say you, John the Baptist. Um, you, you, Elijah. Uh, one of the prophets. One of the Old Testament prophets. But you see, all those guys, John the Baptist, Elijah, all the, all the, all the prophets, they were servants of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's God. A huge difference between uh, these uh, two groups of people. And, you know, I think, friends, the enemy cannot stop the unfolding of salvation. But the enemy can distract us, deceive us, so we don't see who Jesus truly is. He will distract us from all kinds of, of, by all kinds of means. For as long as Jesus is a teacher, he's a prophet, he's not Lord, I'm good. I'm good. But Jesus is a historical figure that one cannot dismiss. He is the pivotal, pivotal point in history. Your confession of who Jesus is, is the most important confession that you could make in your life. That confession has consequences in your life today and for eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? Everyone has to make that confession. So Jesus didn't settle for just that public opinion about him. He, he, he pushed the issue a little further with his disciples. He says, well, who do you say that I am? A personal testimony. Everyone has to make that personal testimony. Even young people who are born in a Christian home... At one point, you need to make that confession. Who do you say Jesus is? You cannot rely on your parents' confession. Who do you say Jesus is personally? And Peter, representing the disciples, just piped up. You are the Christ. Now, who is the Christ? That's an important point. Who is the Christ? The Christ is a title. It's the Hebrew word that is translated as Messiah. It's the anointed one. It is the anointed one that God promised. The king God promised will bring, uh, will come and rescue, save Israel and establish the kingdom of God forever. He is going to be the representative of God in, uh, on earth. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. That's what Peter says. And for Peter to make such a statement, this is huge because Peter is essentially saying that this, this king that we've been waiting for, this king that we've been waiting for, you are it. Let me make a, a couple of observations. Last week, we, we, uh, we talked about the, 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 the commitment that God has to bring about, to bless humanity through Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, uh, not just a child, but a nation. He's going to bring a nation about through Abraham. And part of being a nation is, we, we mentioned last week, we need people. We need land, we need law, we need government. And at the time of Abraham, the government was not just a president, they were kings. In fact, God made it very clear that kings will come from you in Genesis chapter 17 when he's making the promise clearer for Abraham and Sarah. Kings will come from you. And in fact, in, in uh, Genesis 49, when there was a blessing to Judah, he made the promise that the scepter will not depart from you. So God is just promising, promising a king is coming, a king is coming, and all of Israel, all 
the Jew, it just, a king is coming who's going to bring about God's justice, save Israel from all his problems. That king is coming. So Peter, the disciples, they were, they were, they were raised in, in that anticipation. All the Jewish population is just raised. A king is, the Messiah is coming. Now Peter is just say, you are it. You are that king. You are the one that God's been promised, that promised us. The, God accomplished his promise. That's an amazing statement for you to say. We've been waiting for this for years. There he is. He is the king God promised. That's the force behind the, the, the declaration of, of Peter. That you are the Christ. You are the one God promised. The one who will save God's people from evil and injustice. Such declaration brings hope. Great hope. The king is here. Now, Mark shifts the narrative. The moment that he says that now, Jesus starts talking about his death. It's as though Jesus is saying, now that you know who I am, let me tell you why I came. It shifts the attention to the cross. And picture this. The disciples now see the Messiah. God's promise. The king is here. The king's going to die. This is, this is just weird stuff. You know? 31. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. The mission of the king is to die. But die as a ransom, ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It is a redeeming act. But he's not going to stay dead forever. You see, I'm going to die, but I will rise again. I will rise again. I will have victory over death. And that victory gives us hope. It will give hope for eternal life. Now, this mission draws spiritual oppression, opposition. Because Jesus dying is a launch, it's a, it's a, it's a rescue mission that Jesus just came for on a rescue mission and he's gonna assault the kingdom of the enemy, kingdom of Satan, to rescue that people. Satan is not gonna stay, he's not staying idle face of this. He is drawing the opposition, he's opposing, uh, 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 Jesus in his, uh, effort to save people. And that's how Peter just rebuked Jesus. That's an act of the enemy. That's the that's Satan fighting back, using Peter as an instrument. Now, let's think about this. Again, Peter just make a bold declaration. God fulfilled his promise. But Peter's registering, you're going to die? What's, what's going on here? This is unexpected. This is strange. I mean, how can, how, how helpful is a dead Messiah? But how are you going to save your people if you're dead? 
What, what's going on here? This is, this is, this is weird. I mean, am I, am I listening? Am I hearing this right? Is, I mean, could you imagine this, the disciples listening to this Peter just, oh, what? Peter, Peter, Peter is just fed up. Peter, Peter is just upset. Now, the word rebuke, rebuke is what Jesus did to demons. Jesus rebuked demons. The term is strong. It's powerful. Peter is upset. Peter is upset. Jesus, what is he talking about? Now, the, the, the text is not clear on why the motivation behind Peter. Maybe Peter didn't want anything bad, anything wrong to happen to his, anything bad happen to his friend, Jesus. Or maybe Peter sees Jesus as the Messiah, but had the expectation is the physical manifestation, the physical manifestation of what the Messiah will bring about. Keep in mind, the Israelites at the time were living under the ruling of the Roman Empire. They were under oppression. The king is here. The king's about to save his people. Save us from the Romans. Dead? Mm-mm. No, that's not going to work. We need to be rescued from these Romans. Maybe that's what's driving Peter. Peter, Peter look, Jesus, Jesus, yo, yo, we got to talk. We got to talk. We got to talk. He took Jesus aside. What's going on here? What's, what's wrong with you? What, what are you talking about? You're going to die? Don't you understand what, what does that mean to be a Messiah? I mean, Messiah, hello. P- Peter is upset. What is sad about all this is that Peter is the one who just made that declaration. And now, he's an instrument of Satan. Peter stands in the way of salvation. Peter is under the oppression of the enemy. Peter needs a savior. He does not even realize it. He's rebuking Jesus. You see, in our fallenness, our biases can distort even the clearest truth about God. And we all have biases. You know, we try to make God fit our views, our self-interest. And in doing so, we make God our subservient. You know, a person of the American dream, we may think, okay, God is a provider. But we forget that God is also holy. God is just. And some of us may subscribe to this unbiblical view that uh, God helped those who help themselves. And you may think, okay, God God, God, God is a helper. But you really neglect that God is gracious. We need to really be careful with our biases. Because if we're not, if, if, if we let go, if we don't, if we, if we don't, if we don't pursue God's will, if we don't, if we don't come and, and read God's word and, and come on the teaching and, and just pursue God's, what God's truthful counsel of God, these biases will just distort our view completely. I think we really need to have the posture that, like the psalmist had in Psalm uh, uh, 139, says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to constantly ask God to search us, search our hearts. Because we, we, we don't come empty to God's word. We always bring some type of bias. But that bias doesn't really give us clear view 
of who Jesus is, of who God is. So Mark tells us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed king who came to save his people from the burden of an enemy much greater, much greater than sickness and diseases, much greater than political oppression, much greater than poverty or financial problems. The enemy is sin and death. And if you're not in Christ, you're spiritually dead. But Jesus came to pay for your sins and to give you victory over death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Peter rebuked Jesus. That's an attack of the enemy. But But Jesus recognized that. Jesus saw that. Jesus resist the enemy. Verse 33, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He went clearly for the one behind the attack. And also rebuking Peter for being an instrument of the enemy. What I like about this is that Mark says he looked at his, at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. He looked at his disciples it's as though Jesus looked at them and realized, if I don't die, these guys die forever. If I don't die, no one will pay for their sins. If I don't die, they'll always be under the oppression of the enemy. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus remains committed to God's plan. Committed to God's will. Because the enemy is not about God. God is God so loved the world that he gave his son. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's heart. That's God's plan. That's God's desire. Jesus is committed to that. The enemy doesn't want that to come about. So we have King Jesus is on the scene. King Jesus came, broke into our reality, died to save us. Now it is clear who he is. It is clear what he came to do. He came to die, die as a ransom for many. But what is interesting, once God opened up your eyes to see who he is, to see who Jesus is, that vision always come with a call, a call to follow him. Always come with a call to follow him. But in this call to follow him, that one comes with a cost. Verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Now in the time of Jesus, the most despised of criminal, the enemy of the state, they are the ones who were, who, were, who were killed on the cross. Now Jesus is essentially telling his disciples, look, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you need to be willing To be rejected by the community. Be willing to be rejected by the state. That's what it takes to follow me. You must be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and my sake. Now, in this part of the world, we rarely associate Christianity with suffering. Yet, this is exactly what Christ calls his disciples to do. You will follow me, you will suffer. Now, no one actually likes to suffer. Because if you do, something is really wrong. 
And no one really wants to be rejected by the community. We all naturally want to fit in. We want to do what other people do in the community. But Jesus is telling us, if you want to follow me, you need to be willing to go against your self-interest. You need to go against your natural tendency. You need to reset your priorities. What used to be important to you once you see who Christ is, that he is the king, that he has full control over you, that he has authority over you, then you submit your priorities to him. Your family lineage becomes secondary. Your social status becomes secondary. Your nationality becomes secondary. Your ethnic background becomes secondary. But who you are in Christ becomes primary. Because he is now Lord over your life. Now, this position will definitely draw serious persecution and spiritual opposition. Because that's not normal. And John makes the warning very clear in his gospel. He says this. This is kind of long, but John 15. I think it's important to read it. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before he hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's very clear. Now, persecution is really almost foreign to us in America but it's getting stronger and stronger. But this is not normal. The church has always been persecuted. The church in the early uh, uh, time of, of, of the church, it was persecuted. And the church is still persecuted today. I mean, in countries like Egypt, Pakistan, Iran, China, Syria, the church is persecuted. And there are, there are situations in communities when one accepts Jesus as the Lord and Savior, they know the cost. At least it's a rejection by the family. At worst, it is imprisonment and sometimes even death. So the church is persecuted. Now, persecution thing can take several, many forms. You know, you can have, for example, we have uh, in our context, we have a businessman who uh, encounters a business deal, but the deal is so sour, so bad that, you know, for the sake of the gospel, says, I, I, I'd rather not make that money. I'd rather not take that deal. I'll, I'll, I'll turn it down. That is really suffering for the gospel. I'm, I know of a, fam, of, of a young lady who accepted, who was, she was not a believer, and uh, uh, she accepted Christ, and uh, she realized, look, I cannot marry this man. This man is, I'll be unequally yoked if I marry this man. I, I can't do it. She was engaged. She ended the relationship. It was painful. That, that is suffering for the sake of the gospel. I know for a couple, a young man, uh, uh, this is probably very common. Uh, so the young man came to the United States. He's married with children. And, uh, but he came uh, illegally. But while he's here, the unexpected happened. His eyes opened and saw that Jesus Christ is Lord. He accepted Christ. Then it was time to renew his work uh, uh, permits. But all the work he was doing was uh, really work. He had a good job. But all that was built on a false identity because he was here illegally. But now he accepted Christ. He was asked, wow, 
I can't. I'm stuck. I cannot continue on this job that was built on a lie. This man ended his employment. Friends, I'm telling you, they went through, they went through tough times. A man who no longer can provide for his family. The wife don't understand why he made such a this foolish decision. But him, out of conviction of who he is in Christ, he said, I cannot lie to get a job. God will have to provide. Boy, it was hard. It was hard, hard on the family, hard on their marriage. But I got to tell you today, he's a citizen. And he has a job. After long years of suffering, God preserved him, God kept him. That is suffering for the sake of the gospel. So, if you want to follow Christ, there's a cost that comes with it. Once you know who he is, you realize he is the king. He has lordship over you. You no longer have full control over your life. You submit. You follow And that comes with opposition. That comes with trouble. That comes with pain. That comes with suffering. But it's not suffering without hope. Our king didn't remain dead. He was raised. Because he was raised. Because he has raised victory over death. He didn't have victory over everything. If you are in him, you live in victory in him. So everything that we go through in terms of suffering is really Temporary. Now it is hard going through it. It is difficult going through it. But we don't suffer as one without hope. We serve a king who is compassionate. And is victorious. He will come back again. To take his people with him. That's the hope that we have. That's the life that we have in Christ. And for us, believers, one thing I want to warn you about is self-sufficiency. Because we all want to be self-sufficient, especially in our day, in our day-to-day. We, we want to run our lives. We want to, we want to uh, you know, we don't need anybody. And we're not going to even say it out loud. You're not going to say, I don't need God. But the reality is the way you run your life is really saying that you really don't need God. Self-sufficiency will lead to death. Depending on the Lord. That's the posture that we need as a follower of Christ. We are depending on him for everything. For everything. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospels will save it. It's a weird exchange. But for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit, and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? I've met a young lady who, after weeks of discipleship, she, she just turned the gospel down because she said, I'm good. I don't need Jesus. I'm good. My life is fine. That is self-sufficiency. That will lead to death. It is sad. It is sad. And even again, telling you, us Christians, this is 
the enemy can use that very often. We can think we can put our lives on cruise control and think that we're okay. Dependence on the Lord. That's the posture. Now, this life that Jesus promises us is an eternal life. But this life, we can only get it through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't put your faith in Christ, that hope, you cannot hold on to that. It's not, of you, it's not yours. But you put your faith in Christ. You are in Christ. You can hold on to it. Because he's faithful. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. If you reject Jesus, you're on your own. You're on your own. You're not on a journey that will surely lead to death. But God has provided a way for eternal life. And it is in Jesus Christ. I was telling you earlier that I used to see God, Jesus, as a provider and a protector and could not see him as a redeemer. You know, it took me falling in, in my... Last week, they read a little bit of my testimony of my life. I messed up so bad that, 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 I, that I just away and turned from the gospel, not go to church. And it's, it's just my life was just as rebellious as it could be. And I was looking for love and acceptance in all the wrong places, looking at friends, looking at women. That's why I was looking for that love and acceptance. I joined the military, wanted to be part of something much greater than myself. And I was away from any context to, to hold me accountable. My life was a mess. And there's a young lady, for her, she was, she, was, she, was, she was that image of acceptance for me. And one day, engagement ring in my hands. I realized that she was having an affair with somebody, with a married man. That crushed me. That crushed me. For a man seeking acceptance to encounter that, that was not easy. That was not easy. But God used that experience to open up my eyes to see what the gospel means. Because after that event, I was, I mean, depression. I was under depression for months. And I didn't know how to get myself back up. And friends would came to me, say, look, we, you got to go back to church. You got to go, come to church with me. Come to church with me. But I could not see myself going back. I could not see myself being accepted after years of just rebellion. Because I never understood that he was my redeemer. I never understood that he was so compassionate. He finally, the Spirit of God, led me to see who Jesus is fully. Yes, he's my protector. Yes, he's my provider. He's my savior. He's my redeemer. He died for me. He died for me. He died for those years of rebellion. 
When I saw that, it's like the gospel was black and white. It becomes technicolor. Beyond technical, it's HD, whatever that new technology is. It's like, whoa. I am loved. I am accepted. You see? You see the trick of the enemy? I was looking for love and acceptance in all the wrong places. All along, I was loved and accepted by the king. But when I saw that, that wow, in my life changed. It was a turning point in my life from that point. From that point on, I live a life submitted. Now, it's not perfect, but I know who my king is. I know that I'm loved. I know that I'm accepted. That's what God is calling you to, to see who he is. He's loving. He's caring. He loves you and he accepts you. He will never let go of you. Like he was holding on to this blind man. Never let go of this blind man's hands until the man was able to see and walk by himself. He was in sure hands. You in sure hands. Jesus is the king who came to save the world. He came to die. Now he's he's alive. He will come back again. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For do you say, Jesus says. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. We ask that you open up our eyes to see fully who Christ is in our lives. And uh, in light of who he is, in light of the calling, Father, we ask that you give us the strength to follow you, to suffer, knowing that it is temporary. Christ will return. We will make all things right. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.